A Bible will be very helpful at this moment if you've got one, I hope. Uh, Open back with me to Hebrews chapter 3 and let's continue our study of the book of Hebrews. Uh, We'll finish up chapter 3 this morning. We're just racing through the book of Hebrews. Uh, Guys, I'm going to start at verse 12 and read to the end of the chapter, but I I just want to remind you that this this is a pastor who is writing to an audience, a Jewish audience, converted Jews living in Rome, um, who because of persecution continued to struggle with the idea about whether or not we, sh- we made a mistake. We-, we need to go back. We need to lay down all this Jesus stuff and go back to, uh, to Judaism. And so that is, what, that, that is the backdrop of this entire book. So keep that in mind. As I read, beginning at verse 12 through the end of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this endures forever. Guys, um, Hebrews chapter 3, this chapter is heavy with history, Jewish history. And if you're kind of a history buff, who knows, you may even enjoy this sermon. Um, But one thing's for sure, you, you will not enjoy the text unless you know at least a little bit of, um, of Jewish history, of the history of Israel. So, let me, let me do that real quickly. I, I, we won't take long, but I, I need to refresh your memory as to the, the history, which is the, really the backdrop of this text. The book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis closes with Joseph being at, in the number two spot in Egypt, and he is managing this whole distribution of food through the seven years of plenty and the seven years of, of famine. Remember that? Um, then the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, opens with Joseph being dead for years and Egypt uh, long forgetting uh, their great deliverer, this Jewish man, Joseph. And of course, Egypt is now in the position of persecuting uh, their captives, which is uh, Israel. And that's when Moses comes along. You remember, God raises up Moses. Um, Moses comes back to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh says, heck with that. 
And, um, and then, then you get the 10 plagues, the 10 plagues, you know, the gnats and the frogs and the flies and all that business. And, and the 10th one is that, that big one, the, uh, painting the blood on the doorpost and the death angel passing over and, um, and the loss of the firstborn, if you didn't have blood on the doorpost and all that business. Um, and, and, and with that, um, Israel is catapulted out of, um, Egypt Egypt is saying, get out. And there she goes, out of bondage, out of the house of slavery. And then three days later, uh, she comes to the Red Sea. Doesn't know how she's going to get across that. That is Israel doesn't. And behind her is the Egyptian army coming to get her to come back. That is through slaughter. And God parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. And uh, Egypt looks at that and says, well, we can do that too. And they get in there and they're all drowned. And there on the other side, that is Israel is on the other side of, of the Red Sea, and from there she makes her way to Sinai. Now, um, the Red Sea happens in chapter 14 of Exodus. Chapter 15 of Exodus, you find this embarrassing scene at the waters of Marah that are bitter and they're all angry at Moses and they want to stone him. And, and uh, so God takes care of that. And then you go to chapter 16, which is the next chapter, and they don't have any food. And so God addresses that issue through the manna thing, you remember? And, and then you come to the next chapter, which is chapter 17, and, and there's, no more, there's no water again at Rephidim. And so God manages that and, and gives them water. And then we come to chapter 20 in the book of Exodus, which is, um, actually it's 19 and 20, the Ten Commandments. They're at Sinai now, the Ten Commandments. And then there's that, that ugly, ugly scene in chapter 32, um, the, the golden calf. You remember that? Oh, that was bad. That was a bad one. But uh, after the golden calf, they, they begin to make their way out into the wilderness on their, way, on their way to the promised land, and they come to a place called Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea. Um, and the events that unfold in Kadesh Barnea, which are recorded for you in uh, Numbers chapter 13, if you want to check me out, Numbers chapter 13, um, uh, the events known as, um, the, the event that occurred there came to be known as the rebellion. Did you see it in, in, uh, in our text this morning? Did, did, did you see it there? Um, do not harden your hearts as in the days of the rebellion. Well, that's a reference to the event that is described for you in Numbers chapter 13. Um, now, l- let me tell you a little bit about that event. It's a biggie in, in Jewish history. They're real close, close to the promised land. Um, and uh, God comes to Moses and said, Moses, I want you to take one representative out of each tribe, send them into the promised land, make them, have them to spy it out, and uh, come back and bring a report to, uh, the, to the nation of Israel. And so Moses does, he, you know, gets 12 guys, the, the 12 spies are sent out into the promised land, and they're gone 40 days. They come back um, uh, to give their report, and um, they bring some fruit with them, remember that? Um, they got these, this giant illustrations of the fertility of the land and all that business. And, um, 
So they step forward uh, to report to Moses and give them their report of what they saw in the promised land. The report begins, by the way, not the full report. This is the majority report. They sent out 12 spies. Ten of them give this report. It starts in verse 27. And here's what they say. Now, this is the 10 spies. And they say this. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is some of its fruit. Oh, yeah, Moses, you were right. <laughs> is that one fine land out there? That, uh, that, is, a, that is a beautiful place. Uh, rolling hills and, and the valleys and the, the, the rivers. And, and look at this fruit. And then the next verse begins with this word. However. <laughs> oh, yeah, Moses. Great land. Great land. However. They say, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. Yeah, 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 Moses, it's a great land, all right. (laughs) But we'll never take that land. Not with all those guys living over there. And by the way, we also saw the sons of Anak. <laughs> so everybody's quivering, you know. And about that time, um, there, you know, there's other, the minority report is voiced by a guy by the name of Caleb. There's only two of the minority report, and that would be Joshua and Caleb. Well, Joshua is the spokesman. Joshua, I mean, Caleb, I, I, I said that wrong. Caleb is the spokesman. Caleb steps forward and he says this. This is in verse 30. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. At that point, ladies and gentlemen, the nation of Israel faces a very serious choice. We just heard the majority report from the, you know, those 10 spies. And they said, uh-uh, no, we can't take that because of the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites. We can't take that. Uh-uh. And now Caleb steps forward. And he says, let's go. We're well able to do it. And then, or now, Israel has to choose. Who are we going to believe here? And um, who we believe, of course, determines who we're going to follow. The ten or the two. I mean, it's ten to two. The majority is ten. There's only two of those guys saying we can do it. And so the, the ten spies reply to Caleb, but then they spend the rest of the night kind of you know, thrashing around and out there in the wilderness and trying to figure out what they do. And then they come to a decision. And I want to read you their decision. It's the first four verses of chapter 14. Here is their their decision. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! 
Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That event, ladies and gentlemen, came to be known in Jewish history as the rebellion. You want to go back to Egypt? That was the rebellion. The next time we hear a spokesman, it is a God whose patience has been exhausted. And this is what he says. In response to their their choice, God says this. This is in chapter 14, verse 32. God is speaking and he says, But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will, I will do to all this wicked generation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end and there they shall die. Guys, do you see why the author of Hebrews is using this story? These people in Numbers 13 wanted to go back like his audience in Hebrews 3. They want to go back to Egypt. These guys want to go back to Judaism. And so this pastor is writing to these what he believes to be converted Jews and saying, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Guys, it's been estimated that somewhere around two million adults came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. Do you you know how many of them made it into the promised land? Two. (laughs) Caleb and Joshua. Two million graves dug out in the wilderness. Guys, did you notice... When I read the text, did you notice um, how this author defines what they did? That is, the cause of God's displeasure. It's right there in verse 19. He says, so we see that they were unable to enter. Because of unbelief. What's the big deal of 
two million people perishing in the wilderness. You know what the big deal is? The big deal is unbelief. Unbelief, ladies and gentlemen, is never pretty. It's never benign. There is nothing more wicked than unbelief. Not abortion, not murder, not adultery, not homosexuality. Nothing is as ugly. And nothing ends as badly as does unbelief. This single event in Kadesh Barnea, which came to be known as the rebellion, is the event that describes and defines Israel's unbelief. Ten of those spies insisted that the land was not takeable, that God couldn't be trusted, that he's not good, and on one occasion, they even say, he hates us. If only we could get our hands on that God. But they can't get their hands on him. And so they, they take out their, their fury on, on his spokesman, Caleb and Joshua and Moses. Guys, that story that is the backdrop of Hebrews 3, the story of Kadesh Barnea, is a complete rejection of God and his promises. And here's what, here's what serves to make it worse. Their rejection of God and his promises is in light of all of the miraculous, all of the events that they had seen heretofore. You know, like the ten plagues and the uh, Red Sea and the waters at Mara and the manna and the, and the water at Rephidim. In light of all that, they say, yeah, 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 that land, it's a good land all right there. I see it. I mean, look at this fruit. It's, it's really a nice place. Oh, yeah, I, you know, I, I can see where you'd be happy out there. But God can't be trusted to give us that. Yeah, 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 I'd like to have that kind of life. But, 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 but God, can't get, God can't take us there. In spite of all I've seen, in spite of all of the kindnesses that he's already demonstrated to me, to me in the past, I know it's a good land. But God can't take me there. Now guys, that event is in the mind of this author in the book of Hebrews. And what he's, he's writing to this little congregation of his. And what he's, what he's doing, he's trying to avoid a, re, a repeat of the rebellion He's, he's writing to them in the hopes that they would avoid unbelief. An unbelief which will eventually lead to rebellion. Or, another word would be disobedience. Disobedience. 
And you know what, guys? In that regard, he is writing to an audience very similar to the one that I'm speaking to. He's writing to an audience who have seen a lot. They've seen God's kindnesses in numerous ways. They've seen him deliver them over and over again. And yet, they're still not convinced that he has their best interest at heart. Kind of like... um, Kind of like this audience. An audience that has heard the gospel, has loved the gospel, and in, and in many instances across this room has, have believed the gospel. And yet we come to places in our, in our experience where we're just not real sure that God does love me and that he has my best interest at heart. Now, guys, I want you to look at what this pastor, the author of Hebrews, I want you to notice what, he, what advice he gives to his audience. It's in verse 13. He says to this audience, very similar to this audience, but exhort one another Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Gang, this is a pastor writing to a group, struggling with temptation, struggling with the sense of I might want to go back. And he says, wait a minute. Here's some advice for you. I want you to exhort one another. Staying in a, in, a, in a constant contact with the family that is other Christians. Ladies and gentlemen, how can you obey this exhortation when you cut yourselves off and regularly distance yourself from the ones who are here to exhort And I'm not talking about me. He doesn't say let the preacher exhort you. It says exhort one another. Gang, there is supposed to be among us a spiritual solidarity, a mutual concern which prompts us to exhort one another. Well, is that all? Is that all? Guys, um, the advice that he gives us in verse 13 is supposed to be at least a part of the antidote to rebellion. Um, Somebody who asks the question, is that all? Is somebody who does not understand the purpose of the Christian church, or at least one of the purposes of the Christian church. Guys, listen. 
next to the Bible and prayer, the greatest provision that God has made for us is each other. Satan, he wants to get you alone because that's where he does his best work. I, I ran across this little story in, um, um, by Martin Luther. I'm not going to read you the whole story, just a couple of sentences, but um, Martin Luther, you know, once he launched the, the Protestant Reformation, was really racked with periods of depression and temptation. And um, he wrote several things, and on one occasion when he found himself in a, a period of temptation, he, he wrote this, Eve, that is Adam and Eve, Eve got into trouble when she walked in the garden alone. I have my worst temptations when I am by myself. You know, I, I, I dare to suggest that that's true of the rest of us, too. So no, 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 going out to Las Vegas. Yeah. You know, because, um, you know, what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. My friend, are you so naive as to think that that's succumbing to temptation while you're alone is not going to be brought back home with you? Are we so benighted that we think, oh, that won't bother me? Guys, Satan wants to get you alone. And this little pastor writing to this bunch of Jews in Rome says, What you need is the exhortations of your fellow brother and sister in Christ. My friend, you are so important to me. And I'm important to you. But instead of exhorting one another. We're so afraid. We don't do that. Because we're so afraid that we're going to be accused of being judgmental. To you I say this. Guys, do you understand how ravaged we all are by the, by the fall? Do you, do you know how broken we all are? including your pastor buddy? Do you know just how broken we are? Or, or this, do you know? Do you know the beauties of grace and undeserved forgiveness? Do you know all of the richness of the gospel? My friends, Have you ever peered into the burning eyes of 
the enemy of your soul? On one occasion, it is said that Martin Luther felt the presence of the devil in his office so, so really that he took up an inkwell and he threw it at him. Have you ever, have you ever experienced the depth of temptation? If any of that is true of you, you know what you need? A church. A church that, first of all, understands just how, all, just how ravaged we all are. So we don't have to pretend. We don't have to be phonies. <laughs> no, no, no. Because we know that the fall ravages us all. And we also know that we have been redeemed by a God who granted us a forgiveness that we didn't deserve. And we also know that we've got an enemy of our souls. And once we as a congregation know those things, then we come back in here and we exhort one another. Did you see also what he says in that verse 13 about the deceitfulness of sin? Guys, the chief characteristic of, of sin is that it deceives us. It, it, we're, and, and by the way, we also like sin. And so we're sitting ducks. It's deceptive, and we like sin in the first place, and here it comes. You know what we need? According to this pastor, we need a group of people who will see when Jimmy Young is veering off to into the deceptive path of sin to come to him and say, uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. Don't go there. It'll ultimately harm you. You know, I was sitting in a movie yesterday by myself. My wife wouldn't go with me because we don't like the same kind of movies. Um, and there's this thing that happens before the movie, you know? You, know I'll, you get there and you see all these... There's this one, I don't even know, it's a commercial, I guess. But there's this, it's scary, and this woman is in this scary house, and she goes to this door, and she's about to turn the knob, and this little voice comes out, and it says, don't go in there. Don't go in there. Don't open that door. She takes her hands off of the knob, and she backs up, and the, and the, and the, the line is, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody tell you, to warn you when you're in danger? be great here it is I want to read you a story that came out of a Philip Yancey book and if you've never read this book to me it's his best what's so amazing about grace if you've never read that you need to get it and read it it's wonderful but this is this is really his opening story and I'm telling you, this is a rough story. There's, some rough, there's a rough part in it. And because we have little mothers here with little ones, I'm going to change a little portion of this. Um, just because I don't want you parents to have to go home and have to explain his language. But I mean, um, this is rough. But I mean, just one little statement is rough. I can steer, I, I hope. This was a story that was told to Philip Yancey by a friend of his who uh, was ministering on the down and outside of Chicago. This is the story. 
A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me, this is the rough part, I say this, that she was, that her daughter, her two-year-old, was a partner in her business. She could make more money renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn in a whole night herself. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. And and at last I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I'm already feeling horrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Is that true of us? Well, I'll tell you, if it is, I'll tell you why. Because we do not understand how ravaged we are by sin. And we do not understand the beauties of the gospel and grace. And we have never wrestled ourselves with the enemy of our souls. If we've done that, then we wouldn't be anything but tender towards anyone who was so gripped by sin. And if that's who we are, To that audience, this author says, exhort one another. Guys, did, did you see in the text what he equate, with what he equates unbelief? Um, it's, it's real clear. Um, verse 19, he says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Look at verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who are disobedient. Do you see that? Disobedience equated with unbelief. Do you know that? Do you know that disobedience is always the result of unbelief? And did you know that unbelief always gives rise to disobedience? Did you know that? Those two go together. Gang, when I choose to sin, um, then then I'm thinking like, somebody who believed the 10 spies. I'm believing that, like this, it's like, yeah, 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 I understand that happiness is out there. And I know how God says happiness is to be gotten. But I can't trust that God to give that to me. Unbelief. And so I'm going to have to devise my own plan for making me happy. Rebellion. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, tell me this. Have you ever regretted disobedience? Uh, 
life too. But now tell me this. Have you ever regretted obedience? Tell me one time where you regretted obeying God. Guys, um, unbelief ends badly. Um, and in that text, you know, um, we have no promise that today includes tomorrow. So while today is today, I, may I exhort you? And I want to exhort you like this. In the rebellion that is in this, that we've referred to, the people were faced, they were forced to make a choice. Who am I going to believe? The ten spies are the two. They were forced to choose who they would believe and thus who they would follow. So are you. So are you faced with a choice. Who are you going to believe and thus who are you going to follow? John Stott wrote a great book called, entitled The Cross. If you've not read it, uh, you ought to get that one too. But in the book The Cross, John Stott puts the choice this way. Here's the choice. Number one. Sin is me substituting myself for God. Putting myself in God's place where only God deserves to be in charge of my life. Here's the other choice, other option. Sin is me substituting myself for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for me putting himself where only I deserve to be. So what's your choice? Sin, putting yourself where God ought to be, or salvation, God putting himself where we ought to be. Our Father, I, I pray that you will use this text to remind us that we are, that we're pretty much always in danger because of the world of flesh and the devil. We are, we're always uh, being confronted with temptation. And when the pain gets great, there is, there is the thought that maybe we ought to give up. And I pray that you will use this church, a place that understands, hopefully, the beauties of grace, so that we might be a place where we can exhort one another without fear, knowing that there is a mutual solidarity, a mutual concern, that we not, any of us, veer off into the deceitful path of sin. 
Father, if you've led people here this morning who have not yet seen the beauties of Christ Jesus, you know, Lord, that I cannot open their eyes. Only you can do that. So do it. Do that for Christ's sake. And we pray in his name.